and uh, your interest in this study. Uh, let me mention a few things we've got coming up uh, to begin with. This morning we mentioned that um, next Sunday morning is going to be what we call our back to school blessing and our and we've as of last year we've added to it the back to ba- back the badge blessing and and here's what that is it's just an opportunity an excuse to encourage people and if you know anybody who's uh, involved in in education if you know anybody that uh, you know they work in schools they're a teacher they're on the school board they drive a bus they they work in the cafeteria they um, you know, whatever, then tell them that we want to be a source of blessing for them throughout the school year. And you invite them and encourage them to come. And that way you'll be, um, you'll be a source of light. You'll be a source of God's light and encouragement. Now, it's, it's perfectly appropriate to invite school children as well. Uh, and we will pray for them. And we'll have that as part of what we do also. Since we now do prayer pals, we've got an even more direct way to do that. And so we'll cover that on September 9th as well. And, um, you know, don't, don't worry about if, if, if all the details here just seem to be changing. Just know that the, the goal is, is to bless people. Now, last year, we did for the first time the back, back the badge. And um, we had a group of uh, uh, police officers, public safety, and in... In with um, with some of the uh, the unfortunate things that have happened around the country uh, involving law enforcement, uh, it was very touching to see that happen last year. And if you were here, you'll remember that. And it gave us a chance to say, uh, "Your fellow human beings, your uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we want to support you." We do know that uh, one of the, the um, captains from the Fort Smith Police Department plans on being here. Uh, we, uh, we know that uh, some others in the area are going to be here. Uh, I talked to the uh, fire marshal, Tommy Bishop, today and told him about it. He's going to tell others. You know some of these people as well. So why don't you encourage them, ask them to show up. And again, you are free to interpret that however you want. I mean, if you, uh, you, know, if you know somebody and they're a... I don't know, ambulance driver or something like that, sure, that qualifies. We're not going to turn anybody away. We're not going to check badges when they get up there and say, sorry, no prayers for you. It doesn't work that way. So you just encourage and be a source of light, and God will bring the blessing. Um, Two of our couples from our Celebrate Recovery program, you heard uh, uh, Larry mention the needs this morning, but... uh, Larry and Donna and Mike and Sheila have returned from the Celebrate Recovery Summit in California. They're highly encouraged, and we're uh, excited to hear all the good things that they have to share with us. If um, you have any interest in that program, I encourage you to uh, come and visit us tomorrow night at 6 o'clock in the gym. And um, tomorrow night's going to be teaching night. We're going to have a lesson. And uh, again, it, it might be something that maybe it's something that could be a blessing to you or it might be something that you want to encourage others to come with you or maybe there's a place you can serve right now we're talking about the need and celebration place and we did have some responses to that and that's one of the reasons why we are uh, looking at this study it seems like the um, the 12 steps have have even entered into our culture the 12 steps of recovery and a lot of different programs use these 12 steps and modify them 
And what we've been saying all along is that they have their basis in biblical teaching. And you remember that we, uh, well, maybe you won't remember, but let me just review very quickly. In 1921, there was a group called the Oxford Group that met together, and their goal was to be a first century Christian fellowship. Now, there's no direct connection to restoration churches or churches of Christ that I'm aware of, but their goal was to simply be Bible-based, and they weren't trying to be a, 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 a new church. They were just trying to be a movement of people who followed Christian teachings and, teachings and biblical teachings. And out of that group came the founders of the uh, original 12-step program, which was Alcoholics Anonymous. And so these 12 steps were organized around certain biblical principles. Then in 1990, when the uh, Saddleback Church developed the Celebrate Recovery program, they went back and identified certain biblical passages that fit with each of the 12 steps. And so I'm using that list uh, to go over this this 12-part study. Tonight we're looking at step 5. And step five says we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs, which is very similar to step four, where in step four the uh, statement is uh, we made a, um, a, a fearless, a searching, fearless moral inventory. So in step four, you're naming, you're making an inventory, a list, a specific list of the sins that, that you need to make amends for, that you need to identify. And, and uh, programs will say different things, but in Celebrate Recovery we would say not only sins but hurts. Uh, how have you been hurt? Uh, because you might be carrying around some resentment, and uh, it may not be anything that you've done, but something that was done to you, and you need to know how to be free of that hurt. Uh, so now in this step, it goes a step further, and now instead of just naming it between you and God, you're naming it to God, but another person is involved. And this is where it can start to get a little scary, because at that point, what, what do we do with other people being involved? Well, there's a trusted relationship that's built there, but, the, but before I get into that, I want to show you the biblical verse that's attached to this. James 5.16 James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I find this to be one of the most interesting parts of the recovery program because in the church, confession has become far more formal than the New Testament teaching ever intended. That's, that's my opinion, and now I'll have to back that up maybe with some teaching, but... Um, the reason I say that is we are on this side of organized religion uh, between us and the, uh, the first century. And there have been um, institutionalized forms of confession. And, of course, we, you know, we're used to it. Uh, now, now if, you, you grew up, if you grew up in a Catholic church, then, then you've witnessed this. Uh, for the rest of us who are so-called Protestants, uh, maybe you, you don't have a first-hand experience of it. Which, by the way, I've decided I can't be a Protestant unless I first become a, a Catholic or, or maybe an Episcopalian. Because then I got, I've got to know what I'm protesting against. So, uh, you know, I really can't claim that. And, 
But you always see it in the movies where uh, the fellow goes up, you know, to the confessional and the priest opens the little screen. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. You know, we all know what's going on there. We get it. We get the form. It's like, oh, okay, here's where they're going to, you know, sort out the dirty laundry. Here's where the person names stuff. And, of course, that's not the biblical, ver- you know, vision. It's not, I don't think it's even practiced that way in most churches. That, that, that's not how confession's done. It's not this formal process. We've sort of done our uh, own version of it where you have to go forward. There's nothing in Scripture that says you have to go forward and confess your sins in, in, you know, by going to the first pew. And we've identified that so much that that first pew, I mean, nobody sits there. It's always funny to me that the only people who sit on that first pew are those who are supposedly confessing their sins and then me, before I get up and preach, it's like, wait a second, there's a, you know, what's going on here? Um, so, um, but, but again, that's a formal process. That's not what's in view in James's letter. But let's take a step back and let's look at the whole of James's letter. Um, James, the letter from James, is written by James the Just. He's not called that in Scripture. That's his name from history. There's a lot of different individuals named James. But most uh, believe that this is written by the James who's identified as James the Just, and he would have been known as the brother of Jesus. Not just in a spiritual sense, but another child of Mary and Joseph. And so in James, he introduces himself in the first verse, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Very simple, very plain, and very sparse greeting, but it's sufficient. What is interesting about this is that the things that James says are very similar to the same things that we read in Jesus's teachings uh, sometime if you are having a, a time of study read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 6 and 7 and then read the book of James and you'll see a lot of the themes repeated uh, James for example uh, in James 5 says um, above all do not swear not by heaven by earth or by anything else all you need to say is a simple yes or no otherwise you'll be condemned That's very much like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. This may be the earliest part of the New Testament. Uh, This this may be one of the first items written that make it into what we call the New Testament. That it's written as as early as the 60s, maybe maybe even possibly before that. Some date it even before Paul's letters. Um, 62 AD would be if it is James the Just, that would just be the latest date that it could be written because James the Just is martyred, according to history. So that means it had to be written before 62. I've seen some commentators who believe it's written in the 40s. No one knows for sure, but it is probably early material. Uh, the type of material is, is well known and well attested to. It's wisdom writing. It bears a lot of similarity to Proverbs. It bears a lot of similarity to Ecclesiastes, that wise sayings are being made. 
instruction for living. Uh, It's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. It calls for good behavior in the midst of hardships. So if we condense some of the themes of James, if we just fly over it very quickly and take a look at the big topics that he covered. Righteous behavior, the way we live. That's important in James, which also is similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount by saying, the wise person is the one who takes these words of mine and puts them into practice. It's not just enough to hear it and say, eh, that's good. You have to live it out. James speaks of being hearers of the word, and if you're really truly hearers of the word, then you're also doers of the word. That faith and action go hand in hand. Um, Saying and doing are important. That's caused people throughout history, especially after Martin Luther, to believe that James somehow doesn't fit. See, Martin Luther wasn't a real fan of the book of James. And, you know, that's Martin Luther's opinion. But the reason why is because he believed that James emphasized works over grace. Nothing of the sort. In fact, you'll see Paul doing the same thing in some of his letters. It just depends on which audience he's talking to. I think that James and the letters of Paul fit together very well, and there's a lot of consistency. James is simply saying what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. That is, if you believe this, then you're going to practice it. If you're truly wise, then you're going to follow through on these instructions. You're going to do what I teach you to do. Otherwise, if teaching has no action, no follow-up, then what's the point of teaching? (laughs) There is no point of teaching if there's not anything for us to do. This is a way of living. Some people believe that that undercuts grace that somehow that means that grace isn't um isn't necessary james and jesus for that matter are not talking about a way of living that earns salvation they're talking about a way of living that's better that's healthier that's more spiritual that's more godly um paul talks about that in uh in ephesians And, uh, you know, we've had some sermons on that where Paul talks about working out your salvation, putting your salvation to work. If you truly are saved, then you're going to let the action of that come through. That's why I I see that James and Paul agree on a lot. Um, James, one of his themes will be repentance and godly wisdom. That what godly wisdom calls us to do is to change our ways. And so it's very fitting that at the end of his letter in chapter 5, he emphasizes this idea of confessing your sins. He's been building up to it in the entire letter. Some people think that James is sort of a um, potpourri of teachings, that James is just writing down a bunch of stuff, collecting it together, and it's kind of a, uh, a wisdom salad or a Bible salad. I don't think so. I think he has been... Uh, Weaving together themes that have to do with the way that, that, that God works with us and then the way that we ought to display that relationship with one another. I'll come back to that in a second. James, now notice, he addresses this to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. 
When you hear the language of 12 tribes scattered among the nations, those are people living in exile. I mean, you're already thinking, I mean, I don't know, when's the last time you were scattered? Uh, it may have been right before you walked in here. Uh, you know, I, I know that I feel scattered a lot of the time. But scattering is not a good place to be in. So these people are going to be going under some kind of stress. There's something that has happened to make them feel scattered and dislocated. So James is writing to them in the midst of their trials and their troubles. And he wants them to know that even in that, they can follow the wisdom of God. And he's, he's calling in the history of God's people who were sometimes dislocated, who were sometimes in the wrong place, who were sometimes in exile. But it's always in those moments that the great things of God show up. Think about the story of God's people when Moses you know, leads them out of Egypt and God shows his mighty power to deliver them from slavery. Which, by the way, even more so than the creation, is the beginning of the Old Testament story. That exodus from Egypt, that's the, the, the hinge on which everything, uh, the hub really, on which everything centers in the, in the Hebrew faith. The Ten Commandments start with the admission, with the confession. I'm the God who saved you out of Egypt. I'm your God. You're my people. Now here's how you're going to live. Even more so than the creation. We, we may, you know, the creation is part, an important part of the story. But that relationship that God has, that he delivers people who didn't necessarily deserve it, but they were delivered simply because of his uh, faithful and steadfast love. And then they were called to live in a different way. James is reminding them of that. And it's always in those moments that the, that the things that the people of God remember, that's, that's what happens. Where do they get the Ten Commandments when they're wandering in the desert? You think about the other things that filled the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the staff of Aaron that led them through the desert. That comes from the desert period. Where did they get the manna when they were being fed in the desert? All the important stories happen when they are wandering in the desert. Much of the rest of the Old Testament is written not to comfortable Israel, but to the people in exile. Jeremiah's prophecies are to the people in exile. Ezekiel's prophecies are to the nations and to the people in exile. Uh, the uh, word to Nehemiah and Ezra is when they're rebuilding, but they're coming out of exile and they're, they're, they're being reestablished. That's when God shows up. During the trials, he's there. That's when they recognize him. When they end up in the land and everything's going fine, that's when they get in trouble. That's when things go bad because then they start relying on themselves. So James is ringing in a lot of this scriptural story when he's writing this. And I also think that he is, uh, without mentioning it, he's keen into what Jesus calls the two greatest commandments. The two commandments are found in Jesus is taking them from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's, that's known as the Shema, which, is, which simply is the Hebrew word for hear, Israel. Hear. Listen up, is what he's saying. Here's the most important thing. Um, greatest among all commandments. Love the Lord your God with everything that, that makes you who you are. And then the second is like that. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so what you have there is you have two dimensions, two um, um, directions. The vertical, the up and down, which is our relationship with God. And the horizontal, our relationship with one another. See, I know that when I'm talking, sometimes when I teach the younger crowds, I mention things that they don't know what I'm talking about at all. But I know that this audience can understand. And am I calling you old? You're as old as I am at least. So anyway, what I'm saying is, you remember when TVs had vertical and horizontal hold? I do. I remember that. And why you had to have that on a television, I don't know. I, you know but why you would ever have to use it. I guess that way Walter Cronkite wouldn't look so flat, you know, and you could turn it and he would, you know, expand out, you know, and Lawrence Welk would get, you know, wider and wider. And we used to sometimes play with that, you know, to, uh, it's like Captain Kangaroo's on, let's make him really fat, you know, and it was, you know, and you, and you were getting those two dimensions set where everything was right. Well, there are two holds in the Christian life, the vertical and the horizontal, and James is pulling those together, and he's saying you need to get both of those adjusted. Because loving God is one thing, but then how you love God will, will make a difference in how you love others. And how you love others will have something to do with how much you love God. John, in his letters, first, first John especially, he's really going to pick up on that. But we're going to save that for another night, because that comes up later. I think these two commandments show up there because... Notice in uh, James 1, um, he can say things like, um, verse 13, 113, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. He's talking about our relationship with God. And then it should be marked out, or we should understand it as a loving relationship. One where he loves us and we love him, and it's our it's our problem with sin that causes that relationship to be damaged and you see right there he's already anticipating what he says in chapter five and then you don't go very far and you get into um uh, you get into uh, chapter two my brothers and sisters believers in our glorious lord jesus christ you must not show favoritism Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in, and if you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man you say, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He's saying if you're a believer in the Lord, the Master, Jesus Christ, then you're not going to have those sort of discriminations among you that have to do with class, status, wealth, and so on and so forth. So James does a great job of pulling these two dimensions together. And then by the time we get to, and James will also have a lot to say about the words that we speak and how we speak them. Are they with anger? Are they with love? Are they with grace? Uh, can we control our tongue? Can we manage what we say? Is there wisdom behind it? Or are we going to be foolish? And, and James, like the Old Testament writers, uses language that, that, that we wouldn't use, I think, as often. But it's so fitting. He talks about being wise or being a fool. Being wise or being a fool. And I think we get hung up on that because Jesus said, you know, not to call people a fool. But there, there's, there's, 
there's James and you've got especially Solomon and Ecclesiastes and they're talking about the fool and Proverbs goes on and on about the fool. While foolishness is folly, it's, the, it's that fallenness, that, uh, that person who hears the words that Jesus teaches and doesn't do what it says. So by the time you get to chapter 5, James has, um, he's got to, the, to summing it up and he's saying, okay, how are we going to live this out? We've heard you, James. We've heard that we need to live this out. We understand that we need to submit ourselves to God. We understand that we're in a fight and that we need to live by this godly wisdom, but, but, but how do we do it? Well, he calls us to repentance. I'm just going to scan chapter 5, the first Six verses, he, uh, he calls on us to uh, uh, repent, especially he calls upon those rich people who've discriminated and treated the poor unjustly. He calls upon them to repent. And then in verse 7, he calls on all of us to be patient. We've got to persevere until the Lord returns. Uh, he uses uh, the language of farming to wait for the, for the crops to come in. Um, the, um, the way that we treat one another, uh, we will be judged by the judge. We don't judge one another. We're, we're terrible judges. But the judge is standing at the door. He's coming soon. He will judge us. And so we're going to treat one another with, uh, with, with love. And we're not going to grumble against one another and, and, and get into thinking the worst of one another. He's calling us to work together in this. Uh, and, and by the way, why throw verse 12 in there? I mean, if you're telling us to uh, get along with one another, why do you have to throw in that little word about swearing oaths? Because the swearing of an oath, he's not talking about using foul language here. He's talking about the oaths that we make, the commitments and promises we make. And in the time of Jesus and in the time of James and even long before that, there was this idea that the oaths that you made might be binding or not binding. In other words, it has to do with a matter of can you be trusted? Is your word truthful? Is it sincere? It goes deep into the heart of the Ten Commandments about lying and telling the truth. And James, mirroring what his brother Jesus said, says very plainly, look, you just need the integrity to let yes mean yes and no mean no. No funny what if yeses no funny what if knows you know you can't twist it and bend it to where it's a yes it sounds like a yes but it's really a conditional no he said all that's from the evil one this language of yes and no is about trust it's about integrity it's about the way that we respect one another and how we treat one another which could have had a very practical application to the fact that some of the rich may not have been paying the poor their just their their deserved wages that they may have been cheating them out of it and they may have been finding clever ways to do that and he says you're going to be held accountable for that just let your yes be yes and let your no be no and by the way if we think that the application of that is is well anybody who asks me i have to say yes no you can let your no be no just let it be no and that's enough. Okay, so he's, he's talking about the way we treat one another in this. That the words that we use show how we treat one another. Now he talks about how we can use those words for good. 
So I'm going to pick up at verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone among you happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Now we're able to, you know, but that, all that language about using the tongue in chapter 3, that's not just a lesson on dirty words. That's not just a lesson on being mad. That's what, you know, the words that you and I speak are sacred things. God uses words to create the universe. I know it's hard, I know it's tough, but he's giving us some positive applications here. He's not just telling us, don't do that. He's saying, use your troubled time, use your words to pray. In your happy times, use your words to praise. Is anyone sick? Let them call upon the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Ah, we can get all hung up on the anointing oil and all that, you know, but that's fine. As far as I know, our elders will anoint you with oil. I remember, I remember one guy uh, down in Texas, he was a... Uh, uh, he was a stock car racer, and his wife was, was really sick, and he was calling upon the elders to anoint his wife. And, he, and they, they said, well, you know, maybe you want her anointed with motor oil. And he said, he said whatever it takes. <laughs> he said, whatever it takes. I just want that. I get that. Uh, and I did see a moment where the, uh, uh, this is, there was a couple, and their child was very sick, and they asked the elders to anoint the child. And they did, and uh, they thought that that child was going to. And I won't go into all the details because I don't. I don't know that I have permission to talk about it. But there was. Um, they thought that things were going to go really bad. And God answered that prayer, and I don't think it was any magical thing where the anointing with oil did some kind of miraculous healing or anything like that. I think that the faith of that moment and the willingness again to practice the faith that we believe the same way that we do communion and baptism that the things that we believe are embodied in the eating and the drinking and the baptizing in this same way it was demonstrated and i think after that everyone there had a sense that you know what whatever happens it's going to be okay and god blessed with a special kind of healing that um it turned out for the good, but at that point in the prayer, everybody knew it was going to be good no matter what. The, the real instruction here is obedience. Use your words. If you're sick, you may, you may need others to pray for you. Call upon them. Um, and now he gets to the next one. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. You know, we might say, well, wait a second. Are we talking about physical sickness or are we talking about sin? James doesn't seem to be too concerned about drawing a line between the two. And, you know, if you stop and think about it, there's a lot of sinful behaviors, sinful choices that make us sick. Um, Sometimes our sin, you know, I'm not just talking about the obvious things that, uh, you know, too much drinking could give you cirrhosis of the liver, uh, too much smoking to give you lung cancer. Okay, yeah, we get those. But, you know, too much worry and a lack of faith can cause you anxiety. Now, that's not to say that if you have anxiety, you have a lack of faith. Please understand. I'm just saying that maybe James understands that there's more of a connection between body and spirit than what we in our enlightenment thinking are willing to accept. 
and that the God who saves our souls is also the God that created our bodies, and he is the God that will renew our bodies, and that it is okay to ask for God to come into this situation, and, and, and even if our sins are of such a nature that it's causing us this illness, then he says they're going to be forgiven, but now he goes one step further, verse 16. So confess your sins, notice the verse, to each other and pray for each other so that you may be, and did you notice this, healed. Not forgiven, healed. The formal public act of confession, however we've done it in an institutional setting, is all about setting the slate clean and saying, okay, whatever you had done, now it's expunged. James says that that confession is for the purpose of healing. You know, we make ourselves, I remember the first time that I learned about anxiety and how it could make you sick. I was in third grade. My mother gave me a check to pay for photographs. She said, here, here now don't lose this. Of course, before I even got on the bus, I left it out at the mailbox. And I, oh, I got to feeling bad. Now my stomach started hurting. I thought, I'm getting sick. Here I was in third grade. I go into the office. Oh, I'm sick. Well, you have to call your mom. You know, you've got some bug or something, some flu. She said, why are you sick? I don't know. And, and you know, my mom showed up finally at school, and she said, uh, well, why, why are you so upset? And I lost the check, you know. And I had pictures. I had images of it floating away in the wind, you know, and. My folks were going to go broke, you know, because they said, don't lose this thing. I also learned about banking that day because mom said, oh, it's a check. I can cancel it. And I'm like, that information would have been good to know this morning, you know, uh, but whatever. But I remember that. And they told me, they said, you're probably just upset. You're worrying and your stomach's upset. I said, really? That's how it works? Well, then I'll just stop worrying. Okay. And and in third grade, you believe you can do that, and it actually, you, you can, and it works. But um, here, we've been, some of us are carrying around stuff we don't need to carry around. And when you name that to someone else, someone you trust, someone who knows what to do with that, there can be healing. A weight can be lifted. Uh, but I, I do believe this is much more than psychology, because here's why. When you confess your sins to God... God forgives. That's where forgiveness comes from. Now, we can forgive one another, and when we forgive one another, what we've decided to do is we've decided that we are not going to seek retribution. We're not going to seek revenge. For God, that's even more pronounced, that when we confess to him, he has already carried out justice through the cross, and so he has chosen not to, to carry out justice, the justice that we deserve. Why? In order to restore relationship and to create salvation. But when we confess to one another, I, I may confess my sins to someone who has nothing at all to do with them, but in doing that, I am met by another person, by a brother in Christ. And I can say, listen, I, I want to name this because I don't want it to control me, and I don't want it to hurt me anymore, and I don't want it to hurt others. And you'll be amazed that in naming that, there is a healing that takes place. And here's why. 
Because sin thrives in secret, and it thrives in the darkness. When you live in southeast Texas, you learn a lot about termites. I went to termite school down there, this school of hard knocks. Found out I had termites in my house. I called the real estate guy who sold me the house. He was uh, one of the... uh, he was one of the brothers of the church. And I said, hey, this house you sold me has got termites. He said, every house in southeast Texas has termites. He goes, they're everywhere. He said, don't worry about it. He goes, just get some chlordane and pour it down there in the hole. I said, chlordane's illegal. Well, we got some. Anyway, he said, you know, just, just treat it. Well, here's what I found out, though. So I called a guy over who knew a little bit about killing bugs. He's like, ah, you don't worry about it. And he says, they're going to scare you on the commercials. But he said, here's the thing. They're everywhere. They're They're everywhere. And he showed me how to spot them. And he said, as soon as you knock that little tube away and the termites are exposed to the light, they die. They can't stand it. The light just kills them. They're like little vampires, you know. You open up the the curtains, there's the sun. Ah, They're all dead. Sin is like that. As soon as you expose it to the light of truth, it shrivels up and dies. Sin thrives in darkness and in secrets. And when we confess it to another that we can trust, We take its power away. We remove that power. Because now we've named it to someone else and that that relationship continues. Sin ruins relationships. Because what it does is it bounces around in our minds and in our hearts. And when you're afraid that others are going to know the thing about us that we don't want anybody else to know. And and that's going to ruin relationships. And confession sheds light and it restores relationships. Um... It not only heals us physically, but it heals the body of Christ relationally. So I think you couldn't have a more appropriate verse to fit this step than James 5.16. In the 12 steps, we'll come back to James, and uh, we'll come back to some of this. I want everybody here to know that, hey, you know, one of the things that you're going to find it in a recovery program, you're going to find it in church, this is the way you're going to find it in your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ is that there can be healing, real definite healing. But again, it may not be easy. You, you may have to dig through some stuff. You may have to dig down. But things can be more than fixed. They can be healed. So uh, that's our Bible lesson for tonight. We're going to sing this song, and then we're going to be dismissed in prayer while we're singing this song. If you want to partake of communion, it's right back there in that room. And uh, let's stand and let's sing together.